And now for something completely different. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 187, Crossing the Line. It will come as no surprise that soldiers and sailors, like athletes today, or any other way to break up humans into a group, are superstitious. But focusing in on sailors, if the story that I'm about to share with you is new to you, you may have a hard time believing it. But I assure you, it's all true. Yes, the idea of mermaids, sirens, and sea monsters has faded from naval lore, but not the feeling that sailors had when it came to if their ship was lucky or not. The U.S. carrier Lexington was called Lady Lex by her crew, and however it came about, she was considered, nay, known to be a good ship. There was nothing specific supporting this, it was just known and accepted. On the other hand, Lexington's sister, the Saratoga, was not. No one knows why, it just was, or wasn't, in this case, a good ship. To argue against either one of these facts was to invite trouble, normally in the form of a fist. But guaranteeing a punch in the kisser was to question why the Navy men were superstitious, that it was silly. Even worse, to end up being fed to the sharks was to call into question the veracity of the 400-year-old tradition of crossing the line. On April 15, 1942, Lady Lex was ordered out of Pearl to deliver 14 Brewster buffaloes to the Marines on Palmyra Island, about 800 miles or 1,287 kilometers south by southwest of Oahu. In tow, were two heavy cruisers and seven destroyers. The escorts made the crew of the Lexington feel safe, but even better, just before leaving, the Lexington had installed the latest radar. Picture a bedspring-like antenna rotating on her foremast. As the task force sailed closer to the equator, the temperature rose easily 100 degrees during the day, but it stayed at least above 90 at night. Adding to the temperature on board, the 16 steam boilers down below sent heat up and out. Thus, the heat of the sun and the heat from the engines met on the flight deck. Indeed, if a man stood still too long, the rubber bottoms of his shoes would start to melt, and men brought up eggs to fry them on the steel deck plates, just for entertainment. In a word, it was miserable. But all that... Well, most of it was forgotten as the ship's crews were ordered to carry out live firing drills every day as the AA gunners on the Lex weren't all that much better than Halsey's men. And if the men still had time to think about the heat in between gunnery practice, then their approaching the equator drove any remaining thoughts away. As the equator, the imaginary line that divides the northern and southern hemispheres of the world, drew closer, the ship's crew, officers and men, were divided into two groups. The shellbacks, those who had crossed the equator before, and the others, the polywogs, those that had not. Again, rank did not matter here during crossing the line. For 24 hours upon reaching the equator, the shellbacks would haze the polywogs in various ways, all 
for the glory of Neptunus Rex, the ruler of the raging main. Again, as this ritual was at least 400 years old in the Western world, there was no one, not even a commander, who could say, No, I'm too busy, or there is a war on, son. To be sure, half of the shellbacks kept the ship going and looked out for enemy contacts. And of course, the same thing was happening on the escort ships as well. It was a time of good-humored ribbing, a release of tension. And Lord knows, in April of 1942, the U.S. Navy was mighty tense. On this day, there were about 500 polywogs on the Lexington, who were about to become the butt of many jokes and pranks. The day started for the polywogs with a breakfast that was made inedible, many times made too spicy for consumption. Therefore, the polywogs would be weaker and less able to resist. But also, this lack of a first meal would allow the polywogs to show how tough they were. For in times of battle that were to come, more than a few meals would be skipped. There was reason within the madness. This go-around on Lady Lex, Commander Mort Siegelman, the executive officer, or XO, who ran the day-to-day operations of the ship to leave the commander free for strategy, thus he was normally a heavy, was even involved. At the very least, he made sure that the polywogs were free of duty that day, thus having no choice but to participate. Two decks below the flight deck, a Grand Inquisitor, a shellback of some note, asked the polywogs ridiculous questions that had no right answer, even if the correct answer was given. The Inquisitor would whisper to his scribes and kibitzers, other shellbacks, and then yell, Contempt of court! So now, a punishment, more embarrassing than painful, was handed down. Now, imagine a farm boy from Kansas who had never been on a ship until recently, having joined the Navy and had no idea what was going on, was dragged in front of the Grand Inquisitor and asked to defend himself against a non-existent charge. He may answer, he may not. He may even ask, what the hell is going on? Or he may tell the shellbacks to shove it. Not a wise move. At this point, the polywog may be pushed around, called names that would make his face turn red, having been raised in a God-fearing manner, and as there were no rules and everything was upside down, some of the quicker-on-the-uptake polywogs would bribe the shellbacks with ice cream, cigarettes, or Coca-Cola. After all, this was all about appeasing Neptune and his minions. If an intelligence officer who was a polywog said this entire episode was beneath him, the Inquisitor would reply, and early in the war this had a mark of truth to it, there was no naval intelligence. Therefore, he was guilty. Of what? Of whatever the Grand Inquisitor and his staff could think up. Meanwhile, the rookie pilots who were polywogs were ordered to put on fur-lined winter flight suits it was 100 degrees or more in the sun, along with their helmets and gloves. Then they were given two empty Coke bottles to hold in front of their eyes and were ordered to continuously search the horizon for icebergs. When the afternoon arrived, King Neptune himself 
normally a long-serving chief petty officer, strode to the front of the flight deck. In his hand was a trident. Where in the hell did that come from? And beside him was his queen, Davy Jones. This required a strange costume, which added to the hilarity, and there was the royal baby, another form of cross-dressing. It didn't hurt if the polywogs were willing to kiss the belly of the royal baby. You just had to ignore all the hair and sweat. Neptune was also there to lay charges against the polywogs to see if they could be trusted for their seaworthiness. But because these men were new to the equator, Neptune knew that they had not properly paid homage to him. So it did not go well for the accused. Still, trying to get out of trouble, the polywogs would entertain the water deity with a talent show, songs, skits, or an extemporaneous poem. Now, the moment of truth came. But truth, as we all know, is often accompanied by pain. And here it was. Each polywog, having endured humiliation and hazing, was now stripped to his underwear and painted, or as King Neptune would have said, anointed, with a mixture of egg yolks, banana oil, torpedo grease, and whatever last-minute ingredient was to hand. Then Neptune would give his blessing to the polywogs, but nothing comes free. The polywogs were then forced to run the gauntlet, an 800-foot-long path, and on each side of the path were hundreds of shellbacks who smacked their buttocks as they ran by with canvas tubes. The strikes did not stop until the polywog had finished the gauntlet, so it was best not to fall down. When all were finished, the collective polywogs were informed that they were now certified shellbacks, and they had entered King Neptune's domain. At this point, many of the former polywogs would vow revenge, but they were reminded that, one, it was all over, and two, they would be on the controlling end of the canvas bags next time. This normally calmed the men down and put a somewhat pained smile on their face. Now the newest members of Neptune's domain would head to the showers, but their torture was not quite done. They were in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The shower water was salt water. That wasn't part of the hazing, just normal procedure, but I'm sure it hurt. And soon there were a few inches of soapy, oily, dirty water on the floor. This was followed by a brief, oh-so-brief rinse of fresh water. Not that all the anointment came off the first time. Then they shaved with salt water, which irritated their skin. Again, this was normal in the Navy in 1942. And from that moment that they stepped out of the shower, they were once again drenched in sweat. And this was before deodorants were widely used. Ah, life in the Navy. Many of the men claimed they could not remember a time when they had not sweated 24 hours a day. Even President Roosevelt, a seaman through and through, had to appear before King Neptune in 1936. Before he could speak, Neptune charged him with disregarding the traditions of the sea and of taking liberties with the fishermen that he had encountered on his many sailings. 
These were the people that His Majesty Neptunus Rex had promised to protect. Soon, FDR was a shellback and promised to leave the fishermen alone. In 2010, the line-crossing ceremony was observed, but probably more subdued compared to 1942, when sailors of several countries, the United States, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and Uruguay, crossed the equator when aboard the USS New Orleans. The newly christened shellbacks are then given a certificate, which will, one day, be proudly hung on their walls at home. And as technology made dying in war more random, luck in any form was cherished. Now it was time for the shellbacks of the Lexington and her escorts to go to war. <laughs> 